0: Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. It's been... Busy week this week with plenty on fraud, bribery and cyber attacks and some other bits and pieces on other things just to keep us interested in everything that's going on. As usual, the links to the principal stories, flagged by me, can be found in the podcast description. Now we'll start this week with sanctions where it's been a relatively quiet week. In the UK, the government has amended a definition under a general licence concerning North American subsidiaries to ensure that they're covered by the terms of the license, and a license covering legal fees has had its operation extended to the 28th of October 2023. Links to both documents can be found in the podcast description. In the European Union, while discussions continue on the next round of sanctions against Russia, the European Union has shifted its focus to sanctions implementation by member states and circumvention by Russia first. News that the Bulgarian government is being investigated for its implementation of EU sanctions against Russia. It's believed that several individuals on the EU sanctions list have not been sanctioned by Bulgaria, but continue to hold property on the Black Sea coast, either themselves or through family members. The investigation continues. The second story is that the EU is considering sanctions against third countries who are not doing enough to ensure that they are being used they're not being used rather to allow the Russian authorities to evade sanctions final piece of sanctions news this week comes courtesy of the Lloyd's Market Association which has published oil price cap endorsements for political risk and credit business these clauses are meant as guidance and should be used in conjunction with a general sanctions clause linked to the announcement which also contains links to clauses relevant Uh, the clause relevant pdf documents can be found in the podcast description now fraud it's been an exceptionally busy week for fraud this week as it seems to be all the time really i'll start with a roundup of the us department of justice which has its usual deluge of stories as ever i've had to be a bit picky because i mean they really do churn them out the us department of justice really does churn out these stories anyway i'll begin with our old friend covid fraud both, concern, both of these cases certainly concern the sentencing of two men for separate cases of abuse of the Paycheck Protection Program and one of both the Paycheck Protection Program and the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program, both scheme, schemes rather, <laughs> aimed to protect individuals adversely financially affected by the impact of COVID-19. A Houston man fraudulently received $3.3 million and a man from Louisiana $1.1 million as well as restitution orders, both men were sentenced to 102 months and 120 months respectively. The best of the rest is that an Alaskan couple have been charged in relation to an allegedly fraudulent investment scheme concerning medical and recreational marijuana production, while a man from California has been sentenced for tax evasion and fraud after over 20 years on the run following a failure to appear for sentencing in 2001. Links to all stories can be found in the podcast description. Two other big stories out of the US this week. First, it's been reported that a former buyer for Apple has been imprisoned prison for three years for defrauding the company of $17 million. The conduct, which took place over a decade, concerned a range of activity, including taking kickbacks, stealing parts, Inflating invoices and causing Apple to pay for items and services which were never received. Secondly, the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, has announced that a court order has been made in the sum of 3.4 billion US dollars against Cornelius Johannes Steinberg, who I believe is a South African national, in relation to forex fraud. The Commodities and Futures Trading Commission press release provides. The order requires Steinberg to pay $1.7 billion in restitution to defrauded victims and a $1.7 billion civil monetary penalty, which is the highest civil monetary penalty order in any CFTC case. This action is also the largest fraudulent scheme involving Bitcoin charged in any CFTC case. Link to the press release from the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission is in the podcast description. To the UK now, and we'll start with news of more COVID-19 relief fund fraud. The Insolvency Service has announced the conviction for fraud of a London businessman for claiming £25,000 in COVID-19 relief before closing his business in an attempt to avoid repaying the taxpayer. Rajesh Dirajal Bagela. Uh, was sentenced to six months' imprisonment, suspended for 18 months after his guilty plea. Link to the insolvency service announcement is in the podcast description. Sticking with UK agencies, the Food, Standard, a food Standards Agency in the UK has issued an update blog on its food fraud investigation concerning mislabelling and other allegations. In response to the work it's been doing, the agency has announced that it will, quote, review the scope Or a single telephone number or website that whistleblowers can contact to report concerns about food businesses. There are currently multiple telephone lines run by industry bodies, as well as one run by the Food Standards Agency itself. Secondly, see how to strengthen the role that third-party audits can play in passing on information to regulators to prevent food fraud. Third-party audits are used by retailers and others to check their own supply chains. Thirdly, review the best format and mechanism for the Food Standards Agency to share intelligence-based alerts better to warn businesses about problems in supply chains. Link to the blog post, Chief Executive's message to stakeholders update on our meat fraud investigation, is in the podcast description. You've got to hope that in the drafting of the blog post there was at least some discussion about the potential for puns. meat, stakeholders. Anyway, I think we'll leave it there. In terms of big fraud news this week, the UK government has published its policy paper, Fraud Strategy, Stopping Scams and Protecting the Public. In it, the government commits to cutting 2019 fraud levels by 10% by 2025. It plans to do this by implementing a number of strategies, among which are... Establishing a new national fraud squad with over 400 new posts and to make fraud a priority for the police. To deploy the UK intelligence community and lead a new global partnership relentlessly to pursue fraudsters wherever they are in the world. To put more fraudsters behind bars through better investigation and prosecution processes for fraud and digital offences. To ban SIM farms which are used by criminals to send thousands of scam texts at once, to stop fraudsters from being able to send mass text messages by requiring mass text messaging services to be registered, subject to a rapid review, to replace action fraud with a state-of-the-art system for victims to report fraud and cybercrimes to the police, to ban cold calls on financial products so fraudsters cannot dupe people into buying fake investments, Stop people from hiding behind fake companies and create new powers to take down fraudulent websites. To work with industry to make sure that intelligence is shared quickly with each other and law enforcement. Change the law so that more victims of fraud can get their money back. Overhaul and streamline fraud communications so that people know how to protect themselves from fraud and how to report it. Make the tech sector... Put in place extra protections for their customers and introduce tough penalties for those who do not do so. And finally, to shine a light on which platforms are the safest, making sure that companies are properly incentivised to combat fraud. Despite the language which sticks in the throat on occasion, it's worth noting that once more there's nothing on increasing education for the general public. With cyber and other threats increasing, as all the evidence seems to point in that direction, while all these strategic objectives can be welcomed, I suppose, I do feel that a significant amount of this problem would halt with a dedicated and comprehensive programme of learning for the general public. It could be in the form of a nationwide programme of engagement or targeted through specific public and private agencies. Whatever can be done, should be done, to help the public understand the scale of the threat and how to avoid becoming a victim. Links to the press release, news story and the strategy itself are in the podcast description. In response to the news of the publication of the fraud strategy, the pressure and research group Spotlight on Corruption published a blog post by Dr Susan Hawley and Dr Daniel Beasley, which, while broadly supportive of the proposals, it was critical of the lack of of funding commitment which accompanied the announcement the authors indicate that the uk position may be less favorable in that regard to the us where they've gone big on funding such law enforcement efforts especially on pandemic related fraud where there have been huge losses in the united kingdom and the efforts to recover them have been what might only be regarded as minimal anyway the link to that blog post can be found in the podcast description now, as it happens, this fraud strategy comes in the same week as the TSB, which is the United Kingdom Bank, has implored Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram to make to take action to prevent the proliferation of scam adverts and smishing through its platforms. The three platforms, all of which are owned by Meta, have been urged by the Director of Fraud Prevention at TSB, Paul Davis, Quotes, to clean up their platforms to protect the countless innocent victims who use their services every day. In the meantime, we're urging the public to remain cautious to potential scam content and to spread the word to help protect those around you. Well, while it's certainly the case that the numbers are counted as opposed to countless, I do appreciate the call to ask members of the public to be cautious. We have to distrust each other, since that's our only defence against betrayal. The quotes are taken from the Guardian report of the story, the link to which is in the podcast description. The final bit of news this week is the publication by the United Kingdom Home Office of its findings from the Economic Crime Survey 2020, which concerns the results of a survey of incidents of fraud and corruption experienced by businesses in the three years up to 2020. Link to that is in the podcast description. Now to bribery and corruption news and the European Union, where... There have been stories over recent months, weeks and months, relating to corruption among members of the European Parliament. So this story can't come as much of a surprise. Now, you'll recall that the European Parliament, certainly some MEPs, current and maybe former as well, became embroiled in the Qatar bribery scandal earlier in the year, where it was alleged that money had been taken improperly for the performance of a relevant function. Well, since that scandal broke, and before waiting for the outcome of any investigation, the EU has been looking to get its house in order. Well, this week, several members of the European Union executive have shared their views of the Commission on the Direction of Travel in Respect of Corruption, recognising a commitment which was made by the European Union President Ursula von der Leyen in her 2022 State of the Union address. The key elements of the proposals were set down in the Commission's press release, which was published on Wednesday. First, an EU network against corruption is to be developed to map common areas where corruption risks are high across the European Union. This will inform the overall strategy of the EU on corruption. Secondly, stronger rules on corruption will be developed to prevent it where possible and to build a culture of integrity. This will be achieved by raising awareness of corruption, holding the public sector to the highest standards, establishing specialist anti-corruption bodies, ensuring adequate resources and training. On the specific issue of criminalisation of corruption, there is a commitment to harmonise the definitions of criminal offences concerning corruption across the bloc and to enhance the level of criminal sanctions where corruption occurs. At a national level, member states will have to provide law enforcement with necessary investigative tools and powers, including the lifting of privilege and immunity where it is needed. Perhaps most interestingly, the proposal suggests expanding the Common Foreign and Security Policy Sanctions toolbox to encompass serious acts of corruption, which might include the powers to enable the European Union to introduce entry bans and asset freezes for individuals and entities from third third countries if they have committed serious corruption offences. The European Commission press release is in the podcast description, together with a Q&A published alongside it. I have also included the comments of the High Representative Vice President Josep Borrell, published on the website of the Diplomatic Service of the European Union. Further corruption-related commentary this week came from the Council of the European Union, where it approved conclusions highlighting the importance of incorporating a strong anti-corruption perspective in all development efforts. Links to the press release, council conclusions and the meeting page are all in the podcast description. Now we turn to money laundering. On the money laundering front, it's been, I suppose, a relatively quiet week. There have been quite a few stories, but they're not going to set the world alight. We'll start with the United Kingdom, where the Office for Professional Body Anti-Money Laundering Supervision has published its annual report, which issues a could-do-better response on the operation of professional body supervisors. While there have been improvements in the operation of PBSs, or professional body supervisors, generally weaknesses remain, with some needing to make significant improvement to their operational performance. As the report provides, while a few PBSs are already largely effective, though still with a scope for improvement, we want them to be more ambitious and strive for full effectiveness. This is especially so in the core areas of governance, supervision and the risk-based approach Enforcement and information and intelligence sharing. There are also some PBSs which are outliers to their peers, which is unacceptable to OPBAS. They need to step up their efforts if they are effectively to fulfill their role as the first line of supervisory defence against AML threats. We expect to see material improvements in effectiveness in the coming round of PBS assessments following the revisions of the OPBAS sourcebook. Also significant in the report were the following. First, the PBS's OPBAS assessed have still not implemented a fully effective risk based approach that prioritizes, prioritizes rather their AML supervisory and enforcement work. Significant weaknesses remain in many PBS's supervisory activity. None of the PBS's OPBAS assessed maintained fully effective intelligence and information sharing arrangements. PBSs have made some progress in enforcement action, but still need to improve the overall level of effectiveness of their enforcement frameworks. PBSs have contributed to the implementation of sanctions following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The report is linked in the podcast description. In other news from the UK, the UK Financial Intelligence Unit and the National Crime Agency published... SARs, or Suspicious Activity Report, glossary codes and reporting routes. This replaces previous iterations of the glossary codes. While across London at the Financial Conduct Authority, it has been announced that action continues to be taken against unregistered crypto ATMs, which are being used for the laundering of illicit funds. Links to both stories can be found in the podcast description. A final money laundering story this month comes from the FBI in the US. Where it has been announced that a virtual currency exchange used to facilitate criminal activity has been taken offline in fact not just one there have been a few of them the action which has been coordinated with the ukrainian authorities cites lax anti-money laundering compliance procedures among other things as being issues for concern link to it can be found in the podcast description now we turn to a bit of regulatory news this week there's a reasonable level of regulatory news from the United Kingdom, where the dual regulators have been slightly busy. First, the Financial Conduct Authority has set out its updated approach, aimed to provide more confidence to whistleblowers who engage in the process. The change follows a qualitative survey of whistleblowers who expressed concern about wrongdoing to the Financial Conduct Authority. In consequence of that, the Financial Conduct Authority commits to First, provide whistleblowers with more detail on what has been or what has been done with the information provided or reasons for taking or not taking action. Secondly, to improve the use of whistleblowers information across the Financial Conduct Authority, for example, making the best use of data and ensuring that end-to-end whistleblowing processes are as efficient as possible. Thirdly, enhance its web form which is the most popular way for whistleblowers to contact the Financial Conduct Authority to capture fully every whistleblower's disclosure, to engage with the Department for Business and Trade to support a review of whistleblower legislation to enhance the wider whistleblowing system. Link to the announcement this week and the results of that qualitative survey which I mentioned can be found in the podcast description. Actually, Before we leave the subject of whistleblowers, on Friday this week, the US Securities and Exchange Commission announced its, quote, largest ever award, nearly $279 million to a whistleblower whose information and assistance led to the successful enforcement of SEC and related actions. This is the highest award in the SEC's whistleblower program's history, more than doubling the $114 million whistleblower award the SEC issued in October 2020. No information was provided about the identity of the whistleblower, obviously, nor of the case concerned, but you can read all about it in the podcast description. To the Bank of England and the Prudential Regulation Authority Now, which has published a consultation on the subject of changes in their enforcement procedures. The proposed changes are designed, among other things, first to provide a route for early cooperation in appropriate cases, enabling investigative outcomes to be reached more effectively and quickly, and engaging increased senior manager accountability in relation to such cooperation, to incentivise early admissions through the introduction of an enhanced settlement discount in appropriate cases of up to 50%, to set out the scope of the Bank's enforcement powers more clearly, including in relation to individuals, and draw together all relevant enforcement policies and procedures in one more accessible and comprehensive document for ease of usage, to clarify the approach and procedures the Bank would adopt in Financial Market Infrastructure Enforcement Investigations and introduce a route to settlement similar to the one used by the Prudential Regulation Authority Enforcement Investigations to change how they calculate the financial penalty for PRA-regulated firms to provide more consistency and better to align their approach with the PRA's approach to supervising firms and change the serious hardship thresholds which have not been updated since 2013. Although that is for individuals. To update and move the PRA's policy and procedures for supervisory and non-enforcement-related statutory notice decisions into a new, separate document for clarity and ease of reference. And to update, finally, the EDMC remit and procedures to clarify roles and responsibilities of the EDMC to enhance further the operational efficiency of decision-making. The consultation closes on the 4th of August 2023 and related links can be found in the podcast description. The second piece of news is from the Prudential Regulation Authority alone which has published its 23-24 business plan of relevance to financial crime and it's only likely to be tangential is the second strategic objective namely to quote be at the forefront of identifying new and emerging risks and developing international policy. This includes work on digitalization and on the implications of AI and machine learning. It also includes work on crypto assets in coordination with UK and international authorities. If you want to read the vision of a modern prudential regulator, the link is in the podcast description. Now we end this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast with our usual roundup of cyber attack news and there's plenty of it but I only ever scratch the surface because there is simply so much. We start with newly announced attacks. The Swedish Parliament website has been hit with a distributed denial of service attack this week which slowed its website and webcasts. In further news of attacks on government administration, the government of Ukraine was subject to a cyber attack this week in the form of a fake Windows update. To education, as well as a number of schools across the world being impacted by cyber attacks this week, Bluefield University and Wichita State University were both the subject of cyber attacks affecting their systems and, in the case of Bluefield University, causing the postponement of final examinations. To Israel now, and what certainly seems to be a pattern of attacks against Israeli public infrastructure and corporations, with news this week that a Hebrew language radio station and a software company have been the subject of cyber attacks. This comes on top of other news concerning Israel this week, whereby it has been stated that a quarter of all of Iran's cyber attacks have been directed towards Israel. Now... I know, I realise that this cannot be the fault, all the fault of Iranian cyber criminals. In fact, in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, I noticed that there were some Sudanese cyber criminals who had attacked Israeli infrastructure. But for one state, in the case of Iran, to be responsible for or to send 25% of its cyber, all its cyber attacks to one nation might explain, at least in part, some of the reason for the increase in cyberattacks on Israel in recent weeks. In Germany, it's been reported that Bitmark, the IT service provider, was the subject of a cyberattack causing significant disruption to its operations, and as a protective measure, it took its internal systems offline. The final piece of cyberattack incident news is that the pro-Russian hacking group Killnet executed a cyberattack on Europe's air traffic control agency Eurocontrol. While its website was affected, The attack did not disrupt flights or represent a threat to air traffic. In terms of legacy cyber-attack news now, the US Marshals Service continues to respond to the cyber-attack it suffered earlier this year. It sought to improve its defences, especially by updating its computer system. Now to the continuing fallout from the cyber-attack on Capita, the outsourcing business. The attack, which happened earlier this year, has compromised systems at Capita. But because of its outsourcing work it's also likely impacted other agencies with pensions companies this week being urged to check whether data has been stolen and the financial conduct authority in the uk has contacted firms which it regulates and which have outsourced work to capita to see that they are fully engaged in assessing the impact of the data breach on their operations Now to interesting news from the US and the Appellate Division of the New Jersey Superior Court, which determined a dispute between pharmaceutical manufacturer Merck & Co. and its insurer. The case concerned a cyberattack on Merck in 2017 and an exclusion which its insurer had included in the insurance contract between the parties. The court found, on a plain construction of the language, that the exclusion which purported to exclude claims where the loss was caused by hostile or warlike action by a government or sovereign power in times of war or peace, required military action and not a cyber attack. While the decision will undoubtedly please Merck, I'd imagine this has caused a flutter in all the dovecats of insurance companies worldwide, especially given the chat around cyber attack exclusions globally some of which we've reported in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast as far back as January this year. Now, to mop up other cyber attack news first, a report from Checkpoint this week has identified that that in the first quarter of 2023, there's been a 7% increase in cyber attacks, with the number resting at around 1,248 attacks per week, with education and research sectors experiencing the largest percentage increase. 15% compared to the first quarter of 2022. That represents an average of around 2,507 attacks per week. Certainly, when I'm compiling these cyber attack stories every week for the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, I have to say the number of attacks on random schools that I simply don't include because of time, space, and the story being relatively minor is extraordinary. So I would certainly understand why there would be a significantly higher average number of attacks from research and education sectors from this data now i report a fraction of it here and i've already said that today i report a fraction of the cyber attacks that come across my desk in terms of the information every week and i realize it's the tiniest tip of a very very large iceberg but what i try and do is bring the most interesting and compelling stories that are out there Two more stories, and then I'll leave you to your devices for another week first. An interesting study which demonstrates the possible links between cyber attacks on hospitals and patient deaths. There have been many studies which have linked financial crime to death, including at least one which I know of, which mapped deaths caused by the global financial crisis, which was in the latter part of the first decade of the 21st century. So I've linked that story, because it's certainly worth reading, in the podcast description. The final news this week is the announcement from the Welsh Government of the launch of a new plan to help protect Wales from cyber attacks and to grow its cyber sector. The link to that announcement can be found in the podcast description. Well, that's it for episode 57 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll hear from me again, all being very well indeed, next Sunday with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a tremendous week, everyone.